Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. From rebel cop to righteous whistleblower, deep dive political analyst and contributor to the show, Garland Nixon, making sense of the corporate media by, well, reading the news backwards. Because, quote, they're never going to tell you the truth. Good evening. Certainly thank everybody for taking time out of their busy schedule to listen to my show, listen to the rantings of a madman. I guess if you're like um, right now, the people over, over in Langley, you know, they're listening. They're probably like, oh, here comes that crazy conspiracy theory stuff, QAnon, uh, whatever again. A, a madman, I tell you, a madman, a guy who tells you that you're being had by the government. You're being lied to by the system. You're being schnookered, taken advantage of, robbed, picked clean. They're, they're picking your pocket and selling your own wallet, I imagine that ain't going over real big right now. And I would also imagine that right now, you know, the CIA, they're listening. They're probably bored by now, though, of this show. The FBI, they're all listening. They're all bored. I'm sure they're all bored. Oh, not this guy again. But, hey, we get paid to listen to Garland, so let's listen and see what he's got to say this week. So hello to all my national security um, uh, state friends who are listening along with everybody else. Listen up. Maybe you'll learn something, too. All right. Uh, oh, let me read you an email. I, I love this. I love to get emails. And, you know, sometimes you get good emails. Where people are like, I love the job you're doing. It's fantastic. Here's one. I don't even know where this came from, but I got to read it to you <clears throat> and, and give you my response. I, it says, I have to admit you did have me fooled because I thought you were being genuine, giving out all the ways people can contact you, yet you ignore in real life actual discourse. I now believe you are some kind of plant who simply likes speaking viewing your regular script each week, and that's it. Well, I, I can't really argue with that. I guess I'm a plant, whatever plant means. Well, I don't know. I guess I'm a mineral. What's the old game? You know, what is it? Animal, mineral, whatever. Uh, animal, plant, mineral, whatever it is. So I guess, you know, I like plants. So I will take that as a compliment that I'm that kind of a plant. I once heard a vegan person say, if it comes from a plant, eat it. If it's made in a plant, don't, right? Not that I'm a vegan, but I'm just saying. So now I guess I'm a plant who's Spilling my regular script. Oh, that ought to be fun. I guess I better get to my regular script. You know how we plants are. Gotta spew our regular script. All right, let's start here. So, you hear something on the news, and maybe there's something behind it. Well, I'm a guy who reads, 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 reads. I'm like an idiot. I'm reading all day. So, I'm going to start from the, 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 the something that you might have heard on the news, and then I'm going to go backwards and tell you how I get there, right? So, what do we look? We see something on the news that says, and you've probably heard this. Let me give you these two. Biden sending 1,500 troops for Mexico border migrant surge. The Biden administration will send 1,500 troops to the U.S.-Mexico border amid an expected migrant surge following the end of coronavirus pandemic era restrictions. So he's sending the military to the border for something to do with migrants. I don't know. But. I guess they're, are they supposed to shoot the migrants? Are they supposed to, uh, to push them back across the border? I don't know. But apparently 1,500 troops that the Biden team is sending to the board, Mexican border for this migrant surge. Now let me go one more. And remember, we're going to go backwards from this. This is the foundation of the discussion, and we're going to go backwards. Three more states sending National Guard troops to U.S.-Mexico border. The governors of Virginia, West Virginia, and South, Car South Carolina on Wednesday joined a growing list of Republicans leaders, I guess that includes Biden, sending their state National Guard soldiers or other state law enforcement officers to the border with Mexico, right? So we've got Biden sending all of these soldiers to the Mexican border. We've got states. I don't know how many states now are sending. So there's you could one could look at it this way. One could say, hmm, it's interesting. I guess there's a bunch of troops going to the border for immigration. They're going to do something to do with immigration. Not sure what it is, but Biden sending troops to the border on state after state. It's almost like a military buildup on the Mexican border. Now, Garland Nixon being the person that says 
they're never going to tell you the truth. Ever, 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 they're going to lie to you. They're going to say, oh, yeah, it's migrants. That's what it is. Oh, man, you know how those migrants are coming across the border and they're in, I guess, tanks or something. Maybe they're flying F-18As, something, because you got to have the military to stop a bunch of people with backpacks and their kids that are kind of basically hungry, leaving a government, a country that we probably overthrew the government. They never tell you that part. We destabilized their entire region, overthrew all their governments, stole their bananas and their chocolate and their oil and every lithium that we could get from them. And when our policies, when the results of our imperialist policies come back to us, the results of the Monroe Doctrine come back to us at our border. We say, what are those people doing at our border? What's their problem? What are they, crazy? It is our policies. So keep in mind what I'm saying, right? I'm going somewhere here. Biden sending troops to the border, state after state sending troops to the border. It's almost like there's something going on at the border of Mexico. Why now? Okay, let's start here. Let me start with this. The Mexican government continues nationalizing key industries despite U.S. objections. With AMLO, AMLO is the very left-leaning president of Mexico who the U.S. government don't like at all. He is not buying into U.S. crap. He's applied to join the BRICS coalition. Oh, they ain't happy with him. But let's continue. With AMLO's purchase of 13 Spanish-owned power plants, the majority of Mexico's electricity products production is now state-controlled. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, called the decision part of a new nationalization of some of the country's major major industries, including mineral and oil production. So you might have listened to this show before and heard Garland say, I've traveled to South America. And what I found is the countries in South America have a particular, they call it Bolivarian socialism. But one of the economic facets, facets of their way of doing politics is this. A particular country in South America that has, let's just say, oil, lithium, whatever the case may be, right? Rather than let um, uh, Shell or or Chevron or whoever come in, Exxon Mobil, rather than let them come in and pump out the oil and keep the and, and keep all the money, like a lot of countries end up having to do, these countries say the government of this country is going to take over the say oil industry, pump it out, and we're going to use that money to run the government of this country. So that's what a lot of South American countries want to do, right? They got oil. They want to pump the oil up. They want to out. They want to keep the money to run their own government, to take care of infrastructure and whatever they need, right? U.S. don't like that. The U.S. wants Chevron, Exxon Mobil, et cetera, to go in and take their stuff and keep the money. So now, and it's called nationalizing. Nationalizing anything, if you nationalize the oil in your country, that simply means that the government now owns it, the government pumps it, the government keeps the money, and the government uses the money for that country. You may recall that in 1953, the United States government overthrew the government of Iran and put in a brutal, vicious dictator by the name of Well, they called him the Shah of Iran. That ain't his name, but he was a Shah. Okay. He was a puppet. He was the puppet of Iran. And why did they do that? Because Mohammed Mossadegh, who at that time was the duly diplomatically elected president of Iran, said, hey, why is all our money going to the U.S. and England for oil? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to nationalize the oil in Iran, and we're going to sell our own oil and keep the money. 1952, the president of Iran, Mohammed, Mohammed Mossadegh, says, we're going to keep our oil and sell it and keep our money. 1953, the government and the, U- and the U.K. overthrow the government of Iran and put in a puppet and continue to steal the oil. You see a, see a, a, a uh, what's the term I'm looking for? You notice a pattern here, right? Okay, so Mexican president says we have a nationalization policy, mineral, oil, everything. So the government, a government of, of Mexico now says we got a lot of natural resources in Mexico. And what we're going to do is we're going to have the government own them and sell them. And we're going to take that money and use it for the people of Mexico. Whoa, 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 whoa the United States. And you notice the name of the argument of the article. The Mexican government continues nationalizing key industries despite U.S. objections. So they're going to nationalize the stuff. And if you go down the article again, it says, uh, let me find it. 
Uh, it says, uh, what is the American position? Tensions have risen between the U.S. and Mexico surrounding AMLO's increasingly isolationist actions. Right. According to Reuters, the Biden administration plans to give the Mexican government an ultimatum in the coming weeks asking. Listen to this. Listen to the ultimatum asking Mexico to open its energy markets to American companies or face trade tariffs. I keep telling you these people are thugs that the Biden administration's common street thugs. So Mexico says, you know what? We got a lot of oil. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pump this oil. We're going to keep this money. We're going to use it for the Mexican people. It's right here in an article. And that says the Biden administration plans to give the Mexican government an an ultimatum. Open its energy markets to American companies. Think about this ultimatum. Biden will give you this crap. Hey, man, we're about independence and democracy, independence, sovereignty, democracy. How how dare people uh, push back on the independence and sovereignty of nations? Mexico's right next door. And Mexico says, hey, man, we're going to sell our own oil and keep it. And the Biden team said, we're going to give you an ultimatum. You will not. You will open that oil to American companies. Think about that. That's mafia. That's the mafia coming in. When you say, man, I think I'm going to open a restaurant in mafia. Hello? Yeah, this is uh, Joe the Mafia guy. Yeah, you ain't open a restaurant in this community. What do you mean? We already got a restaurant in this community. We're trying to eat, bruh. If you open a restaurant in this community, you'll be sleeping with the fishes. You got that? You ain't opening it. That's what the mafia does. Hey, sorry about that. I guess I won't be opening a restaurant in this because you know when the mafia says that, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes, right? That's Biden, Common Street Hoodlum. Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on Arts Express. We are looking for Geronimo. When I was young, the white eye came and wanted to land in my people. When their soldiers burnt our villages, we moved to the mountains. When they took our food, we ate thorns. When I took a wife, they killed her and my two little girls. But in our hearts, we never surrendered. We are charged with bringing in the renegade Apache Geronimo. We will accomplish this task. We will succeed. A lot of white eyes want to see Geronimo hanged for murder. Not murder. War. I am Geronimo, an Apache. Who are you? And those were scenes from the 1993 Geronimo, an American legend, starring Cherokee actor Wes Studi, along with Gene Hackman and Matt Damon, as the Apache rebel warrior who stood up to the genocidal U.S. Army back then, and the only First Nation actor to ever win an acting Oscar, Studi is no stranger to recreating on screen more truthful and positive portrayals of Native Americans in Dances with Wolves as well is our guest on the show. Phoning in from Tulsa, we're filming new episodes of Reservation Dogs to talk about his latest film on this July 4th weekend approaching, not about glorifying U.S. endless wars on this holiday, but rather the psychological toll on soldiers sent to fight them. In this case, the dramatic feature Mending the Line, spanning wars from Vietnam to Afghanistan and prescribing not firecrackers, but rather therapeutic fishing together as the cure. First, some seeds for Mending the Line, then West Studi. Now you saw the warno. Got one more trip out the wire. They're all gonna go home tomorrow. The tour's over. Still Marines, Vax. Where'd everybody go? It's not easy what you've been through. 
But the important thing now is to heal. What the hell is this world gonna want from me now? I flesh it, right? This is gonna be good. It ain't easy. It takes practice. Do your recon. If you wanna tap out, be my guest. Now, who's the kid? Ah, uh, some VA sob story. Then you two should get along great then. I guess sometimes surviving is your punishment. So I stand in the river, and as the water rushed past me, I knew it was washing my burdens behind me. You know, I didn't watch TV, didn't listen to music. Fishing, that's all he's done. Does that ever get any easier? Nope. But this, this is the place for me. The most important part of fly fishing. Humility. When I was out there on that water, I didn't think about anything else. When you went to war, you survived. If you're gonna fish, don't do it alone. Figure out what it is you're willing to live for. In the book of every soldier's life, the military is a chapter. It's not the whole story. Now that's done, let's go fishing! <laughs> Woo! Hello, Wes Studi, and welcome to our show. Hello, Prairie? Yes. Ah, okay. Okay. Is this film in any way personal for you, based on your own experiences as a soldier in Vietnam, or anyone you know? I think it's fairly personal uh, for me in terms of... Uh, the, uh, the effect of returning from a tour of duty and, you know, combat zone goes. I, um, I've experienced that uh, at, uh, during the Vietnam conflict. Uh, so yeah, I can, uh, I can relate. Mm. And was there anything else about mending the line that drew you into the story and this film? Yeah. It was the fact that I had the opportunity to learn how to use a fly rod and work <laughs> with rocks. <laughs> and what about your interaction with the other actors? Oh, well, that was, that was an eye-opener. It was a, a pleasant one. It was great to work with uh, some real pros. Well, you know, Patricia Heaton is uh, with us. and. Uh, uh, and the younger actors, I you know hadn't uh, really known their work, but uh, when I saw it, uh, I was blasted away, blown away by their uh, abilities. It was uh, uh, great, uh, great time to work. Mm. And are you uh, located right now in Santa Fe? I'm located Oklahoma? there. I'm right now. I'm in a hotel room in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. We just uh, wrapped up the third season of uh, a series called Reservation Dogs, which oh, is there anything you can say about it or not? What's coming up in the series? <laughs> uh, well, as always with the first two seasons, it's another uh, uh, great uh, season of uh, discovery. I'll leave it at that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Now, what are your thoughts about a film like Mending the Line that involves a relationship between two characters bringing to that relationship their two different war experiences, Vietnam and Afghanistan? Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's from what I remember my, from my own personal experience is that there's, uh, it's, it's a, a very different environment and very different uh, circumstances in terms of equipment and such between uh, soldiers in Af Afghanistan and, and soldiers in uh, Vietnam back in the day. Uh, while we were just sort of out beating the patties, rice patties throughout uh, the southern part of Vietnam in uh, the Delta area, we had very little equipment that we used other than boats, but uh, the 
everything that uh, the soldiers in Afghanistan deal with is seems so much more technical and uh, uh, involved with uh, large equipment and, and weapons. Uh, but, you know, the ugliness of war, of course, is uh, always present uh, in any kind of environment. And I think uh, mending the line uh, uh, gives us uh, a bird's eye view of uh, the dangers and uh, the, the trauma that uh, accompanies it, uh, you know, in a, in a place uh, that's practicing modern warfare, I suppose. Mm. You could and speaking of different war experiences, do you have any thoughts to share about the experiences of Native Americans in U.S. wars? Well, I know that we've been involved uh, at a pretty heavy uh, ratio in terms of, uh, of our population and the number of people that we have that uh, have and continue to serve in the armed forces. Um, and there are any number of reasons for that. It's uh, uh, something that I think uh, is almost a traditional thing in that uh, we follow what our fathers have done, you know, their, and their fathers. And uh, it's just kind of a, um, I don't think coincidence, but uh, yes, I don't know exactly uh, where I'm going with this, but, <laughs> you know, um, it's, uh, leave it to say that, um, yes, we've been involved in every, <laughs> every war that the United States uh, has ever uh, been involved in, I think. Mm -hmm. And what would you hope this film conveys to audiences about U.S. wars and the young men who die or are left damaged from those wars? I think if the public can go away with, with at least questioning why we put our young men in harm's way, uh, questioning why, who and who, uh, who profits from it and that kind of thing, I mean, is it really in the interest of our nation to be involved in uh, warfare like this that's uh, uh, treating our, uh, or that's, that's uh, causing uh, our young men to go through uh, such uh, traumatic uh, experiences that affect their lives, uh, the loss of limb, the loss of mind, the loss of uh, so much that, uh, that affects far more than just the personal soldier, it affects the entire families and everyone around him and, it, and changes lives to the point of uh, uh, real trauma. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I hope that, uh, you know, we can question why we actually do that, why we continue to do that. And uh, uh, yeah, and wonder uh, what does it do for us on an, as a public, as a as a as citizens of uh, of a state that uh, seems to be constantly involved in some conflict, mm. and it's been said about you that quote your powerful character portrayals forever changed a Hollywood stereotype. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's too bad that the stereotype was there. To begin with, but uh, I think it, that uh, uh, the roles that I played have allowed me to step somewhat beyond the stereotypical figures that uh, have been written uh, and done by other actors in the past. And um, while I would love to take credit for having done that, uh, I can't totally do that because, you know, it's really comes initially from the writers and then the development of the character at, throughout the story. Uh, so I think that, uh, um, well, okay, I'll just take credit for that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and what could you say about your upcoming film? I wanted to ask you the pipeline based on the true story surrounding the building 
of the transatlantic oil pipeline in Alaska? And what are your thoughts about how this film relates to what's going on today and the potential impact of this film? Well, I have to tell you that I, I, I'm not sure about the development of pipeline. Oh. And uh, um, I think the story idea, of course, is, is, uh, is perennial. It's just, it's, some, it's about uh, the development of the earth itself, if, if you call it development or, or the, uh, uh, the, the attack of the environment. You know, uh, it's, um, I, I think its original concept had always been that we need to move away from fossil fuels, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, the storyline in that, and then and done in a, uh, on a very personal level uh, with the characters in the story. But uh, like I say, I, I don't know how and when Pipeline will continue to develop. Mm. And with Mending the Line or any of your other films, have you ever brought any of your own ideas into your film productions about the way Native Americans are portrayed or should be portrayed? Well, you know, we're, uh, <laughs> um, I am a Native American. I am actually Cherokee, um, <clears throat> but, uh, uh, I can't speak to your question because, you know, Native Americans are not a monolith or, you know, mm. we, we don't all move in the same direction at the same time kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, there has been a wonderful boom in interest about, about Native stories and, that are told by Natives themselves, written, produced, uh, shot, directed, and acted by uh, natives in the past uh, several years. And uh, uh, we're coming into the industry in kind of a big way at this point in time. And uh, uh, while it may have been sort of a cyclical thing in the past where we would become popular after a film like uh, uh, Dances with Wolves or uh, Geronimo, Last of the Mohicans, uh, you know, uh, back in the past, we had enjoyed a certain amount of uh, popularity then for a certain time, and then it, it would go away. This time, I think that uh, we've uh, sort of cemented ourselves in the industry because we're creating our own stories. And speaking of Dances with Wolves, looking back on your breakout film, what are your thoughts, and do you feel any differently about it today? I don't feel any differently about it. I think it was uh, a uh, uh, it was fairly groundbreaking in that we saw the development of the native characters from two dimensional to actual, you know, three dimensional characters uh, like everyone else, and uh, I think that that was its uh, strength as well as its uh, breakthrough moment. Mm. And when West Studi looks in the mirror, what do you see? Somebody I don't know. Mm. And how is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I'm, I just, well, I, I see an older man there. Uh, and, mm. uh, not how I picture myself from uh, my own mind. Ah, you know, mm -hmm. there, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we all uh, hopefully grow older gracefully. Yeah. Okay. And any final word about mending the line and and what you hope it conveys both to audiences and to former soldiers? To former soldiers, I would say that you know it that uh, it will give you an idea that about reaching out for help for assistance in uh, in rerouting your life depending on how how affected you are by the uh, trauma of war mainly that and that uh, that we as a public need to support programs like healing waters and horses for heroes and 
any kind of program that is designed to help veterans reintegrate into uh, society and uh, and into the into their own lives. Mm. Okay, thank you so much, Wes Studi, for joining us on the show. Great, thank you much. Okay, bye. Amending the line is out now in release. Hello, Arts Express. This is Adam Beach giving you a shout out in New York, New York. And I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. And I find when you look at the non-Indigenous, when they get involved in the traditional aspect of things, they usually steal it for a monetary value, whether it's artifacts, whether it's ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and, you know, how they should dress and, yeah, protects that. And that was music from A Tribe Called Red. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Last time we broadcast part one of my conversation with journalist Anthony Lowenstein about his recent book, The Palestine Laboratory. Now, his thesis in the book is that Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank are used as a kind of laboratory for the development and sales of military hardware, surveillance tech, and social media control to other countries which seek to control and repress parts of their populations. As we left off, Lowenstein was talking about Israeli tech used by the U.S. for its control of migrants on the U.S.-Mexico border. So now, here's part two of my interview with Anthony Lowenstein, author of The Palestine Laboratory. On the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, the U.S. has deployed very sophisticated Israeli surveillance towers across mm -hmm. the border. And this is not, as some people might think, something that Trump did. This has been happening, A, for a long time. It started before Trump mm -hmm. was president. It's actually deepened mm -hmm. since he left the presidency. What Biden is doing along the border is deepening the surveillance massively deepening the surveillance technology that they're using to monitor people coming in and out. But the reason the US was so attracted to this Israeli surveillance technology is it's basically produced by Elbert, which is Israel's biggest defense company. And where, was the, where were those technologies tested and actually deployed in the West Bank and around Gaza? That's how it works. So that, that, it's a classic example of how the Palestine laboratory is 
now deployed on the US-Mexico border. One other very quick example is people may remember in 2015 when there was a huge wave of refugees coming into Europe, mostly from mm-hmm. Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, parts of Africa. And although countries like Germany accepted many of them, there was a pretty quick shift to reject many of them and to keep them out. And that's, of course, in contrast to how much of Europe has viewed Ukrainian refugees, who I think people should very much accept. But it's pretty obvious that they're happy to accept white Christian Ukrainians, but not so much brown and Muslims from other parts of the world. So what has the EU done? They've obviously built walls and they've also deployed Israeli drones, which 24-7 fly over the Mediterranean. They're not armed, so they're unarmed, but they are the eye in the sky. And what the EU has done in the last years, one, increasingly not rescue people at sea. So the EU is deliberately, deliberately leaving migrants to drown in the ocean. So Israel has a significant role in EU policy to essentially allow people to drown. Now, the EU, of course, doesn't admit that they're letting people drown, but the evidence is overwhelming. Uh That's what they're doing. And besides weapon and cyber tools, Israel and the IDF are also in the business of training other police forces around the world in repressive techniques. Tell us about that. They do. Essentially, what's really happening is that a lot of the US's so-called war on terror I think, was very much inspired by Israel. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the language, not just the actions of Israel, for example, when it invaded Lebanon in 1982, but the language that they use, the rhetoric about Palestinians, how they were all terrorists, all that kind of rhetoric which became so familiar to all of us after 9-11 was almost the Israeli playbook. And the reason that's relevant here is that soon after 9-11, there was a massive push to get American police forces to do training in Israel to learn about so-called crowd control and population control and managing, frankly, unwanted populations. Now, I'm not arguing that American police forces with a history of racism needed to learn racism from Israel. No, but you do find, and I have lots of quotes in the book and I could have included many more, that there is a real... um, synergy between the ways in which many American police forces viewed how they do their daily jobs, so going after often, you know, whether it's African-Americans or others, and how Israeli police view going after Palestinians in Israel or Palestine. There's a synergy there. How is Israel used as a cutout for U.S. arms sales, where U.S. arms sales are restricted? It was said publicly at the time, but I guess before the age of the internet, these quotes kind of you know, disappeared down the memory hole, that they were happy to be essentially providing weapons or defence training in countries where the US could not. Why? To make friends, obviously, with those repressive regimes, as we said before, or to be friends, better friends with America, that America realises they can't live without Israeli defence contracts. And That has continued to this day where obviously the US and Israel have a close relationship, although as I say in the book, it's a very weird, it's almost like an abusive relationship. On the face of it, they seem incredibly close. They are, I mean, without American backing diplomatically, politically, Israel arguably wouldn't exist, but they also don't really trust each other. It's very odd. You don't really really hear that much in the press, but below the surface, as I research and showed in the book, every day the NSA, America's leading intelligence gathering department, has roughly 400 400 Hebrew-speaking analysts basically spying on Israel every day. And you can be assured, I don't know, I haven't got the number of how many Israelis are spying on America. It might be less, it might be more, I don't know, but it's going to be sizable, right? And the reason that's relevant, apart from on one level the hilarity that they really, they're sort of frenemies in a way, is that in the last few years when there's been this, the Biden administration has talked about cracking down on Israeli spyware. You know, there's been lots of evidence of spyware appearing all over the world. US officials mm-hmm. in Africa had Israeli spyware installed on their phones, not by Israel probably, but by a client in Africa that had bought the spyware. And Biden and his uh, White House have a few years ago put a uh, almost like a quasi ban on NSO Group, which is the company behind Pegasus. So on the face of it, that looks great. Like, well done, 
Washington. But actually, the reality is a bit different. And as I write about in the book, I think it's actually more about America doesn't want competition. America mm. wants mm-hmm. to have the field to themselves. They felt, as a number of interestingly Western intelligence services do, that because Israeli spyware is nominally provided by a private company, NSO Group and others, it's basically an arm of the state. So Netanyahu and Mossad in the last 10 years, for example, have regularly gone around the world and have dangled in front of states spyware. They basically sort of said, we'd like to be closer to you. If you want to be closer to us, I'm talking about nations like Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, UAE, the list goes on. We will sell you this spyware and you, you can become our friend. Now, what does friendship mean in this case? It's, they're basically arms deals, really. They're friendships of convenience. And the US, I think, feels threatened by that, to be honest, which I think is why, although it's not acknowledged, but I think America basically wants to neuter what they view as competition from Israeli spyware mm. companies. Yeah, that's why, you know, I think some leftists think that uh, Israel is a complete puppet of the United States, but I think that's a, a really wrong characterization. Yes, it's more complex Israel than is that. A, mm. Yeah, it's much more complex. It's a capitalist country with its own imperatives. Yes. It's a competition. Um, in, in the war in Ukraine, we've witnessed a mega explosion of war propaganda from both sides in social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And the warring parties have invested tons of money in this. How has Israel sought to control social media? Well, hugely. You know, what's happened in the last, I guess, 15 years since the rise of social media, I'm talking obviously about Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, whatever it may be, has actually challenged for the first time the narrative dominance of Israel. Now, obviously, there were people who supported Palestine, you know, three, four decades ago. But what social media has done is instead of cut out the middleman that... Now you have huge numbers of Palestinians in Palestine tweeting or Facebooking, whatever it may be, their lives. Now, it's unfiltered, it's telling the truth, it's often brutal, and there's been huge numbers of examples of this footage appearing online, which has embarrassed Israel or ashamed Israel, whatever it may be. Whereas in decades past, there has been, I think, an easier ability for um, Israeli not this Israeli state, but pro-Israel forces in the US and elsewhere to either pressure or neuter critical voices. And let's face it, until relatively recently, for about 45 years, until relatively recently, the New York Times and the Washington Post pretty much had, I think it was like 2% of Palestinians. They just don't appear in, in their own words. They just don't appear. Don't appear. Don't get heard. They're invisible. Hmm. And social media changes the game. What's happened in the last years is as Israel's narrative has been threatened, what they're doing is putting huge amounts of pressure on these social media companies, many of which are very open to the pressure, frankly, to censor Palestinian voices, shadow ban. And I think, though, that it's sort of not really working, though, in a weird way, because in many places around the world, including the US, which is arguably the most important nation where change needs to happen, if change ever comes to Israel-Palestine, public opinion is changing. I mean, the evidence for that's overwhelming. Now, this year, yeah. for the first time, uh, more Democratic voters said they supported Palestinians than Israelis. Uh, there was a poll a few years ago, I quote in the book, of one quarter of American Jews. Jews said Israel was an apartheid state. One quarter said they're committing ethnic cleansing. Now, obviously, there are a lot of American Jews who support Israel. Of course, there are. But public opinion is changing. And... I think that has a lot to do with social media. I think it's in some ways it's in spite of mainstream media, not because of it, despite the fact that Palestinians often are, there's an attempt to try to silence them because I think ultimately, I mean, in some ways the current Netanyahu government, as extreme as it is, is really helping the Palestine movement because people can say, you see, this is the, this is a Jewish state. Now, this is what you want to support. This is what you believe. This is who you are. And yes, there are some people who do support that state, of course, but a lot of people, more, I would say, rational or reasonable people look at it and say, no, I'm not going to support a government and therefore often the country that openly calls for ethnic cleansing as senior members of Netanyahu's cabinet do. So I think the war on social media is working on one level, but I'm not sure in the long run it's actually going to work. I wanted to ask you about the 
over-the-top ranting of current Israeli politicians about expelling the Palestinians. Can Israel do without the Palestinians? Do you think they ever would be expelled uh, as long as they seem to have such economic and political value as an incarcerated population? Years ago, I would have said no. And now I think, I fear that it's much more likely. And let me briefly explain what I mean by that, that there is a growing constituency in Israel the Jewish population, this is based on polling. The most most recent polling I saw was in the 40s, 40%, if not more, of Israeli Jews today support ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Now, that is an unbelievably shocking figure. It's not a majority, yes, but I suspect that number is going up because more and more younger Israeli Jews, in fact, are becoming much more right-wing. That's sadly the trend in Israel, not the other way around. Secondly, you have rhetoric, as you say, from Israeli government ministers that openly call for the wiping out of Palestinian villages. And the idea that there could be a second Nakba, Nakba, I'm sure listeners will be aware, but the Palestinian, and also the Israeli ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 48, you have Israeli government ministers and citizens saying, we basically didn't finish the job then. We have to finish it now. Namely, kicking Palestinians out. Now, how would that happen? There would be a war, some unpredictable event. Um, There would be a perceived justification for doing so. Jordan, Egypt and Lebanon would have to be bribed financially to take in more refugees. And then people would say, well, wouldn't the world be an outcry? And I would say, sorry, so which part of the world? Do you think the EU would do anything more than issue a press release? Do I think the Arab countries, most of which are desperate for Israeli surveillance, would care? They might express a statement. I mean, the ultimate question is what would the US do, which as always is the case, is the key. Now, if, if someone like Trump or someone like him is president, what do people think they would do? I would say not very much. If it's a Democrat in the White House, like a Biden or someone like that, I honestly don't know what they would do. I like to think they would do something, say something, try to stop it. But I think it's, it is increasingly to me conceivable Maybe you can't kick all the Palestinians out, but you kick out more. Because in the last 75 years, what Israel, what has frustrated them to no end is most Palestinians haven't left. I mean, they may have been ethnically cleansed in 48 and 67, but there hasn't been this mass exodus voluntarily of Palestinians saying our lives are horrible, we're going to leave. They're staying there. They are resisting. They are staying on their land. And that infuriates the Israeli far right. So I do worry about where this is going, and I think it needs to be talked about far more because if people are aware of even the possibility of it, they can try to stop it. It's remarkable to see the range of sanctions being put into place against Russia now for occupying Ukraine versus no sanctions against Israel for its occupation. Oh, for sure. Look at the ICC. I mean, Russia, you know, Putin is basically up on ICC charges and I'm not by any means a supporter of Putin. He's a thug. But how quickly the world can move when another nation crosses the borders of a different country. How interesting that is. And it's not hard to see it as hypocrisy. That's exactly what it is. Um, Is there any possibility of international sanctioning occurring against Israel or any possibility of change within the Israeli public itself? I think within the public itself, it's very slim. I know there's been obviously mass protests in the last six months, and but the vast majority of Israeli Jewish protesters, A, have had barely any Palestinians there, which is for a reason, because when Israeli Jews go out on the streets and are wanting to protect, so they say, Israeli democracy, Palestinians go... What a joke. Sorry, what's that democracy? Democracy for whom? It's not democracy for us as Palestinians. I don't think you're going to find within Israel itself any kind of real movement for radical change. I just don't see it happening. I do think there is a, although it seems right now very hard to imagine, but I do think there is a possibility of some kind of um, divestment, which is actually already happening in certain kind of retirement funds around the world. So. I do think, I don't want to say there's no hope because although I know people might think this sounds overwhelmingly grim, I do actually take some hope from changing public opinion in America and elsewhere around Palestine that is unprecedented. Now, the question is how that translates into political power, if at all. Yes, there are growing numbers of people in Congress. I mean, I'm talking about maybe half a dozen or a dozen 
who are openly critical of Israel, who are calling for some kind of cuts to military ties. It's far from strong enough, but that wasn't happening for literally the last, you know, 75 years. So it's happening far too slowly, but I think without much more greater public pressure, there can be change. But again, I think that would have to come from outside Israel. I don't see, like with the apartheid South Africa, you know, whites didn't wake up one day and say, gee, this apartheid's pretty awful. There were some who opposed it, of course, but the vast majority were very comfortable with it, had no desire to change it. It was only when international pressure and sanctions and um, complete isolation almost forced South Africa's hand. How would you uh, assess the BDS movement? Well, I think it's part of that. I think BDS is an essential part of trying to put pressure on. I think there is a clear attempt in the US and elsewhere to frame it as anti-Semitism, which I just don't think it is at all. It's not. It's a legitimate non-violent way to pressure Israel, as regularly happens in other countries. I mean, there's huge, as you said, sanctions on Russia and other countries. Um, it's. I mean, not that I actually, for the record, often think sanctions can be quite counterproductive against civilians in those nations. But, I mean, what BDS is trying to do against Israel is target the institutions of power, government, universities, etc., which is a similar model that was used against South African apartheid. So, look, BDS needs to grow bigger. It is growing. It obviously has a lot of headwinds against it. But I think in some ways the more extreme the Israeli government becomes, the easier the BDS is to sell. And BDS is a legitimate way to not buy certain products or pressure musicians not to play there, whatever it may be. Um, so I encourage and hope that it gets much stronger. Thank you so much. It's a, a fascinating book. It's a disturbing book. We're talking about the book, The Palestine Laboratory by Anthony Lowenstein, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, published by Verso. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.